Welcome to episode four of A Year in a Day. I'm your host, Jamie Davis. In episode three, I discussed common myths that surround the topic of separation and divorce with my law partner, Carrie Tortora. In this episode, I will have the pleasure of speaking with Holly Madasser about gray divorce, a phenomenon that is becoming more and more prevalent in today's society. Holly is a CPA and the Senior Vice President and Managing Partner of Stearns Financial Group's Triangle Office. She is a member of the Stearns Intelligent Aging Committee, providing special expertise to clients in the areas of senior housing, gray divorce, and women in finance. Holly has published widely on the topic of women in finance and has been interviewed by numerous national organizations, including the AARP, the AICPA, TD Ameritrade, and Kiplinger's. Most recently, Holly spoke about her new book, Gray Divorce, Silver Linings, A Woman's Guide to Divorce After 50, at the Charles Schwab National Conference. Welcome, Holly. Thank you for having me, Jamie. So first, what is gray divorce? Good question. Um, technically, gray divorce is divorce over the age of 50 between longtime married couples. Often that can be three decades or more. Wow. And so are you seeing more and more of this in your line of work? Yes. Shockingly, it's becoming really prevalent. In fact, um, when I first discovered it as a phenomenon was when I was in my office one day and a 74-year-old woman came in asking for financial advice. This is not an unusual request of a financial advisor until she told me that she was leaving her husband. Wow. I know. And in my mind's eye, I went back to my mother or my grandmother and could not even imagine either of them thinking about leaving their husband at age 74. So I knew something had changed and that prompted me to do a lot of research. And I started having more and more people coming in and um, quickly learned that in 2010, 600,000 people had gone through a gray divorce, and that number is expected to grow to 800,000 people by the year 2030. Really? That's yeah. amazing. So to put that into context, in 2010, that same year, 1.8 million people got divorced. What that means is about a third of all divorcing people in 2010 were age 50 or over. I know in my line of work, too, as a divorce lawyer, I have seen an increasing number of older folks coming in, but I didn't realize that the statistic was that striking. Yeah, we've um, done a lot of research as to what's changed, what changed between our parents' and grandparents' generations, and it's a couple of things. One is baby boomers are aging, and boomers were the first generation of adults to divorce in midlife, so 30s, 40s. And we all know that second and third marriages um, have a higher divorce rate than first marriages. So it makes sense that as boomers are getting to retirement ages, they're more likely to get divorced. But really, the biggest driver to this phenomenon is longevity. People are living longer. Uh, We've added about 10 years to life expectancy since 1960. And what that means is People didn't have a chance for a do-over before. By the time they got to be retirement age, 65 or so, maybe they had another 10 to 15 years of life, but oftentimes they spent half of that time sick in a nursing home. There wasn't an opportunity to do anything different. Now people are not only living longer, but they're actually living healthier. And what I mean by that is 
the time in skilled nursing is down to less than two years. So people in their 70s and 80s are often traveling, starting businesses, second careers, and finding new mates. This has become a possibility when it never was before. So they're still really active and they want to be happy. Yes, yes. Um, one surprising statistic is that two-thirds of these gray divorces are being initiated by women. I know that surprises a lot of people. Absolutely. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. Um, number one being sort of the um, financial independence of women and the way that the laws are written, women who are in the know know that they're entitled to half the marital estate, even if they've been stay-at-home moms. Sure. Secondly, I think in, especially in this generation of women, um, they've spent a long time enabling and caring for other people. So enabling their husband's career, perhaps they've been stay-at-home moms, they've taking care of their children, their parents, and they finally get to a point where it's time for them to live a little. By the time the kids are grown, maybe the husband is, you know, involved in his career. They've grown apart. The woman wants to travel. She wants to experience life for the first time, really, and just doesn't seem to have a partner to do that with and just finally says, I'm done. Or it may be a case, and I've seen this a lot, where there's been chronic abuse, verbal abuse, you know, the woman doesn't feel heard, has not been happy for years and years. And finally, the children are grown and she feels now's her time. So what motivated you to write the book? Well, um, unfortunately, I was one of, I was almost a great divorcer. I went through a divorce when I was 48 years old. And um, in going through that process, I obviously have a strong financial background. I'm a CPA and I had worked for a number of years in the financial industry. And even I found it very difficult to get good, solid financial advice in the divorce space. And um, I began to realize that women going through this process who don't have a financial background are really at a disadvantage when it comes to divorce negotiations and just kind of had a personal interest and sense of empathy in helping other women who are going through this um, make sure that they have the best chance that they can financially to get a do-over. So you mentioned that you see or that you saw at the time women were at a bit of a disadvantage going through this process, especially if they were older. Why is that? Well, I think the um, and I and I hate to stereotype because this really is a side um, an issue of one size fits one. Um, but I will say that in this age group, and especially in the segment that I work in, which is the wealth management segment, we have a lot of high net worth divorces going on. And in those cases, the woman has had the luxury of being able to stay at home with her children. So that can be a blessing and a curse because in, in those senses, she's kind of become disempowered. There has become a power imbalance within the marriage. The husband is the one who's making all the money. He's generally driving all the decisions. He's the one who knows all about the assets, where they're held, how their tax, what their tax position is. And so she's kind of been in the dark relying on him to take care of the finances. And this is not just with stay-at-home moms. I mean, I have women who are doctors who still delegate that 
long-term retirement planning to their husbands. I akin it to um, asking a husband what his china pattern is. He, it's not that he is stupid. He just doesn't care. And it's the same oftentimes with women. They just don't care about long-term retirement planning. They're more interested in the today, the here and the now. And so when it comes to a divorce negotiations, they're oftentimes completely in the dark about what the marital estate is worth, where it's located, what they're entitled to. Um, They don't necessarily understand about investing as well as their husbands. And so I think it puts them at a severe disadvantage. Yeah. And a healthy marriage, you know, sometimes it can just be a regular division of labor that one spouse or the other takes care of the finances and the other spouse takes care of some other aspect of the marriage. But the real problem comes in if the marriage is not a healthy marriage and it's a dysfunctional situation where one spouse is actually keeping the information from the other. I think that can be a problem as well. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I will say, though, it's not just with divorcing people. I mean, we all know that women outlive their husbands by an average of 14 years. Right. And, And so oftentimes, even in a perfectly happy marital situation, if the husband predeceases the wife, the wife is completely blindsided and super vulnerable to financial predators at that time. So I advise all women to take take an active role in the finances of the family. It really doesn't make sense to delegate financial security to someone who is likely to predecease you. Right. Even if you aren't necessarily interested in the subject matter, I mean, you sort of have a duty to yourself to at least know what the information is. Absolutely. Um, to seek it out and to know where your accounts are and what the plan is and maybe to even participate in that plan. Absolutely. At a minimum, just joining your husband for the annual or biannual meeting with your investment advisor, just being present is a huge asset. I mean, information women. really is power in this context. Absolutely. In your book, you mention on page seven that numerous studies indicate that following a divorce, men continue to build their net worth, often acquiring and even exceeding their married standards of living while women do not. Why do you think that is? Well, again, in this segment, part of it is that the woman perhaps hasn't worked ever or for decades. So she really has no earnings power and she may be too old to develop the skills required to ever earn a significant income, whereas the husband has been building his career all these years. And regardless of age, I mean, I have many retired men who are still consulting, sitting on boards. They're still earning an income, even post-retirement. Secondly, men are more inclined to invest. Women somehow feel more secure if they keep their assets in cash, which actually is a guaranteed loss of purchasing power of 3% a year, every year for the rest of their lives. So I think it takes about 22 years before you lose half of your purchasing power. And that's just because of inflation? Just because of inflation. And so the irony in this is, and I want to encourage women to really hear this, When women do invest, they're oftentimes better investors than men because, ironically, they're less emotional. Women typically chase security as opposed to returns, so they're able to be more steady and disciplined, which is actually the kind of temperament you need to be a good investor. 
In your experience as a CPA and wealth manager, what obstacles have you seen facing women over 50 who are going through a divorce? I think the the biggest issue that I see is a woman's fear of the future. And so oftentimes, instead of coming in and sitting down and trying to get as much information as she can, trying to, to help her negotiate a settlement, she's kind of willing to accept what's offered to her. Part of that is um, part of the marital relationship. You know, those patterns are hard to break. So perhaps she's been in a situation where the husband is always, quote unquote, taking care of her. And she still thinks that he's going to do right by her. And he may be trying to do right by her. But wouldn't it be nice if the woman could corroborate that. She could actually have her own voice and independently come to the table knowing what it is she needs to get out of the settlement to ensure her best chance of financial security. So I really encourage women to seek out that information and don't sign anything until you've actually put together a forward-looking financial plan that says, if I accept the settlement option, how long will these assets last? What happens if I run out of money? Do I have a plan B? Because there are many ways to skin this cat. Even if the marital estate doesn't have enough money to take care of you for the rest of your life, there are other remedies like life insurance or long-term care insurance. So there are a myriad of ways we can ensure that you're going to be taken care of without having to um, rob Paul to pay Peter, if that makes sense. What factors should a woman consider when she is trying to determine whether or not a particular settlement offer is a good deal for her? Well, what I've seen is um, oftentimes women aren't aware of the differences between taxable and tax-deferred assets. And so I actually had a case where a woman came in and she said, oh my gosh, we did this divorce so cheaply. We paid $2,000 to a mediator. We sat at the kitchen table. We had the balance sheet. We split everything 50-50. I got a million dollars. He got a million dollars. And here I am ready to invest my assets. So I looked and she had planned to buy a house. So I looked at what she got versus what she got, he got, and he got the investment account that had already been taxed. She got his deferred compensation plan, which was all pre-tax money. She had no idea that the minute she withdrew that money, it would be taxed at ordinary income tax rates. It actually meant that she couldn't buy the house that she had already placed an offer on. So if that wasn't bad enough, can you imagine her rage at being duped this way in this negotiation. And keep in mind, these are people that have been married for decades. They share children. They share family members. They've shared a lifetime together. They're going to continue to see each other. I mean, it makes it virtually impossible to have a civil relationship going forward when you feel like there's been such an inequity. I'm sure. Out of that million dollars, since she ended up with retirement, what, what did that equal out to for her? It depends on her tax bracket and other sources of income, but I would say probably 700000 maybe 600000 wow. depending That's on where it is. a huge difference. A humongous difference. The difference between owning her own house, the difference between her financial security versus his. And the tragedy was... He was continuing to work and he was earning a gazillion dollars and she was at home with three kids. And and so it it really 
Um, I find that often women are so terrified of the financial consequences of divorce that they are penny wise and pound foolish. And, you know, they're willing to pay the attorney. They're not willing to pay that little bit of an extra flat fee to a financial person to help them make sure that something like this doesn't happen. And, you know, when you're talking about gray divorce, very little about the divorce has to do with child custody or, or even alimony, because oftentimes both people are divorced. It really is a division of assets and ensuring financial security. So the, a financial advisor in that role is probably more important than anything else because the divorce is about money. Right. And I guess, especially with gray divorce, given that the people are so close to retirement age, any alimony obligation that there would be would probably be for a very short time, I would imagine, just because very few judges, at least in my experience, are ordering lifetime alimony these days. Usually it's to take someone to retirement age. And so if they're already that close anyway, it makes sense that you need to, as especially as the wife, to get more on the property side of the equation. Absolutely. And again, to reiterate, if there's not enough on the property to basically maintain two households um, and maintain your standard of living, there are other things to look at. For example, a pension election, you know. What's that for those of us that don't know? So let's say your husband works at a company that has a, a pension. And oftentimes this is just assumed to go to the husband and the wife gets the other assets. But if the husband chooses a survivor benefit, he actually takes a little bit less during his lifetime. But at his death, the woman gets the remaining pension for the rest of her life. This is, you know, amounts to a huge sum of money over a woman's lifetime and doesn't require you to have cash sitting around to make her whole. So th there are a myriad of ways to look at this that we can figure out how to make both people as likely to succeed going forward financially as possible. It does not have to be a zero-sum game. But it does require the person to do their homework. It does. It, it absolutely requires the, the woman to have the courage to ask for the information, to be willing to look at the information. You know, knowledge is power. If it's going to be a bad outcome, wouldn't you rather know it now when you have a chance to impact what might come, what might happen, as opposed to the woman I just described who came to me after the fact, and there's really just nothing you can do. Right. It's like not going to the doctor because you don't want to know the diagnosis, and then you just end up dead. Exactly. I mean, it's sort of the same thing. Exactly. So you mentioned that there can be issues with the tax consequences of whatever asset the woman gets in the divorce. What other issues can there be with a settlement that a financial professional could help with on the front end? So one of the things that I often recommend to my women clients is to try to negotiate for a lump sum in lieu of alimony. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The most important Two, I would say the first one is alimony doesn't grow with inflation. So if you're getting alimony for 10 years and you're losing 3% a year, it basically means that you're able to buy less with that same amount of alimony each year that passes by. The second reason I don't like alimony is because it's oftentimes conditional. And what I mean by that is 
the woman ends up having to choose between love or money. Let's say she meets someone and they want to get married or they want to live together. Well, legitimately, she would have to give up her alimony to be able to do that. Most women are you know, are not in the financial situation to just give up their alimony. And so it prevents the woman from moving forward with her life and keeps her in a place of dependency with her husband, ex-husband. And so for those reasons, I think emotionally and financially, it makes sense if you can negotiate a lump sum settlement. Now you might be thinking, why on earth would the husband do this? But I've talked to so many husbands who will say things like the following, I've taken care of her for the last 30 years, and it's just going to really upset me to have to write her a check for the next 10 years every month. And they would rather just write her a bigger check up front, cut the ties themselves, because it allows them the opportunity to retire if they want. They don't have that financial pressure of continuing to support someone financially. I think the one downside, just playing devil's advocate here, if you represented the person who was going to be paying the alimony, um, that lump sum means that your client is bearing all of the risk that the person gets remarried, that the person cohabits, you know, if they've already gotten their money up front, I guess potentially the person could have ended up paying less over the period of years. But, you know, who knows in these cases, anything is possible. Yeah. And and you're right. There are plenty of folks who are more than happy to just lump sum it and get out of that monthly check for sure. Yeah, agreed. I think from the woman's perspective, if she's been a dependent from an emotional point of view, it gives her the best chance of moving forward. Um, but I agree if the husband was paying alimony and he's keeping his fingers crossed that the woman's going to get married in a year and he can stop paying, obviously he would prefer to do that. You know, it, I kind of view the marriage as a business transaction. If you get a buyout, does that mean you should not be able to start a new business? And I kind of think not. This buyout was based on the prior 30 years of marriage. It should not be based on what you do going forward. And so I, I think I'm biased in that opinion. No, and I, I think that's a very valid point. Absolutely. When do you think a woman should consider hiring a financial professional to assist in the divorce process? Well, I've seen this done optimally one of two ways. One is like the 74-year-old woman that I knew who came in and asked for financial support and advice prior to even initiating a divorce. So her idea was, let's figure out if I can even do this. In an optimal scenario, if I can negotiate this settlement, can I maintain my lifestyle? How much would I have to cut it back? Can I be happy with that before she even got to the next step? In those cases, we often do multiple scenarios, you know, starting with a 50-50 division of asset, maybe some alimony, maybe no alimony, and let's just see what that might look like. Other times we are in a situation where the divorce has already been discussed. Maybe both parties have an attorney and either the woman independently or the attorney might call and say, I have a woman in this situation and we'd really like to get some advice on what an acceptable settlement will be for her. And so in that case, I usually will meet with the attorney and the woman and we'll kind of brainstorm collaboratively on what do you think is, you know, I might ask the attorney, what do you think a settlement would be? Or 
or likely to be. And then we'll start with that number because oftentimes, especially in these high net worth situations, it's not very clean. There might be a closely held family business. And so it's not as simple, let's divide the IRA 50-50. So really for me, getting input from the attorney as to the likelihood of an outcome is very helpful in projecting if we get this outcome, here's the lifestyle that the woman can have. Does it mean that she's selling her house? Does it mean that she's no longer able to buy her Prada shoes? I mean, whatever that looks like, she needs to know that before she goes into the negotiation. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to get to the minimal settlement she's willing to accept. And she really needs to know that number because... One, she's trying to get it. And two, if she doesn't get it, she needs to know what she's giving up. How often do you find that your clients just want to hang on to that house? Does that happen a lot? Um, for the women clients, yes. I see that a lot. And and again, it's the size of one size fits one. So I hate to generalize, but nine out of 10 times, that's just a tragic mistake. And I say that because... Let's say you have a house worth $500,000 and an investment account worth 500. The woman will often say, you keep, you know, the assets at whatever advisor you've got and I'll keep the house. And she's emotionally attached to the house. It's where she's raised her children. She wants to maintain continuity and stability for her family. Well, the husband's investments you know, if he had had those since 2008 have grown 250%. I can assure you that the house has not. In addition, it has been a money pit. It's needed a new roof, a new HVAC. You're paying property taxes. It is an albatross. The woman often ultimately ends up having to sell the house after depleted everything she has. And so she just ends up in a way worse situation than the husband. Um, I never try to talk a woman out of keeping the house. All we do is run multiple scenarios. Here's what it looks like if you keep the house. Here's what it looks like if you don't. If there's a huge disparity, the woman makes her own decision. Is it worth keeping that house if it means I'm going to run out of money in 10 years? And, you know, 9.9 .9 out of 10 times, it's not. Right. Yeah. Do you find that women are hesitant to reach out to financial professionals? I do. And I'm glad you asked that question, Jamie, because there's a, a recent study that's been done that women self-report two out of three times that they don't trust the financial services industry. Why is that? Well, you know, you turn on the news and you think of the financial crisis in 08 and you think about, you know, greed and Wall Street and also the financial services industry was um, founded by and still dominated by men. And let's face it, it's, it's Mars and Venus. Women and men think differently about many things and money is no exception. For example, how many times have you heard that a man and another man go play golf together and they talk about everything under the sun and never share that one of the wives is in the hospital? That would never happen between women. Women are more holistic in their relationships. If they sit down with an advisor, they want to know that person, to trust that person. They want to feel heard and understood that you get them. 
That's often hard to do in a typical advisory relationship. So my number one advice to women is find someone to work with who you can trust, who you feel has your back, because trust is the foundation of the entire relationship. What sorts of issues can you help a divorcing woman work through? Um, Well, you know, starting with the divorce negotiation itself is, I would say, probably as important as following the divorce when the woman has sort of a lump sum of money and is maybe afraid of financial markets. Um, Women often are made to feel as though they're risk averse when studies actually show that men are overconfident. And so I don't think that a woman should shy away from her natural investment temperament. She's typically more disciplined, more measured, takes more time to study, to um, interview people and make sure she's comfortable. But what I find is women often don't even take that step. They just kind of sit on it. And you, you just can't sit on a pile of cash. If you had done that in the last 15 years, you literally would have earned 1% a year annualized, which means that you would have lost money to inflation. Wow. So it, it's just not a viable option. So I think the most important thing is to be to, to go to an advisor that's a fiduciary, not someone who can sell a product. And so what does that mean? So a fiduciary um, advisor, there are three models in the financial services industry. One is a, um, a broker dealer. A broker dealer is the traditional advisor that you would think of who is can sell products and get commissions. And I think there are many fine brokers in the world, but one can't deny that there's an inherent conflict of interest. Sure. And and so the other model is a fee-only model. This is the other extreme, which is the fiduciary model. In that model, you're paying for advice, but the person who's advising you can't sell you a product. So not only are you getting more objective advice, but you're also more certain that there's not a conflict of interest. And then the third model is a fee-based model, which some would argue is the most expensive of all because they can get a commission, but they also can charge a flat fee. So it can be a double whammy. So my advice to any woman is to find a fee-only registered investment advisor, which is a fiduciary model. Sit down and talk to that person. And so how, how does the woman find that out? Does she just ask the person? Is it something that would be on their website? What's the best way for her to get that information? Um, I think a direct question. If the person you're talking to can't definitively say, yes, I'm a fiduciary. So this doesn't mean that they say, of course, I have your best interests in mind. They have to be able to say, yes, I'm a fiduciary. If they cannot say that, that's probably not the model I would recommend. In addition to finding a financial professional who is a fiduciary, are there any other criteria the woman should look for? Yeah, and I think this is really important. So um, obviously you want to check references. Um, You also want to make sure that your financial professional has 
uh, the highest designation in whatever discipline they're in, either a CPA or a chartered financial analyst or a certified financial planner. But the, the most important thing is that the person is experienced in divorce. And I say that because that's not something you go to school for. This is a very specialty niche within financial planning. And so some of the questions, if I were a woman that was going through this, would ask is, how many divorce cases do you do a year? What size divorce cases do you do a year? Um, What kind of outcomes have you seen? Can you give me a list of references of people that you've worked for with who've gone through a divorce that I can call? So um, I can't emphasize enough how important experience is in, in this particular arena. And I would think they probably need to be comfortable dealing with divorce lawyers. Exactly. Exactly. So you may ask questions like, well, what divorce attorneys in the area have you worked with? You know, if they're kind of stumbling about or you've never heard of the people, you know, this could be a little bit of a red flag. So I I think it's really important to make sure that the person is established, has good rapport with attorneys, has good rapport with clients, and has created some positive outcomes for her clients. Holly, I think this has been a great conversation. I loved your book. Um, If anybody wants to check it out, it is Gray Divorce, Silver Linings. It's a wonderful read. It's an easy read. Um, I think it can be a great resource in this area. Again, Holly, thank you for taking the time today to, to speak with us about these issues. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of A Year and a Day. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at jdavis at divorcestuff.com. As a reminder, while in my role as a lawyer, my job is to give folks legal advice. The purpose of this podcast is not to do that. This podcast is for general informational purposes only, should not be used as legal advice, and is specific to the law in North Carolina. If you have questions before you take any action, you should consult with a lawyer who is licensed in your state. Thank you.